So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be looking at a familiar passage for believers today, starting around about verse 13. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic of the church triumphant. And so let's begin to read Matthew 16 and verse 13. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And may God add His blessing to the reading and the proclamation of His word today. We read those hopeful words in the midst of this dreaded COVID-19 pandemic. And the pandemic has caused many experts to question and forecast how the future of our world will be changed after the virus has passed. And of course there is no doubt that many spheres of our lives will not be the same for some time and not just our daily routines which have been limited by social distancing but we also think about our economy and politics and education, leisure and technology and the healthcare industry as a whole. And of course, we know that the church has also been impacted by these lockdowns as many preachers are still getting used to preaching to empty pews. And there are prophets in our world and in our media who have made grim predictions about the state of the church going forward. And I just want to take a little time and give you a brief history lesson and go over some of the headline hysteria that we read about and hear about from our media outlets. You'll remember that when the pandemic first began to gain steam, the New York Times featured an article in which they basically blamed the outbreak of the virus on Christian people. Uh, The headline said it all, Road to Coronavirus Hell was Paved by evangelicals. Now we shouldn't be surprised by that church. Jesus said the world would hate us. When Rome was burning, Nero fiddled and Nero blamed that on the church and nothing has really changed in our world. We've also seen mayors like the New York City's Bill de Blasio threaten to quote, permanently shut down churches if they defied stay-at-home orders. And we've even seen some parishioners like folks in Mississippi being fined by local police for assembling for drive-in church services. And then there was another article that I saw recently reported from the Washington Post where they cited a national study. And in that, they revealed 
that they thought one-third of all churches, now think about this, one-third of all churches in the U.S. may have to close their doors forever because they will not survive the budget shortfalls caused by plummeting donations. Now, these are the prognostications of the world. And don't you know that the devil is laughing and wouldn't the world love it if the church would just shut down and God's people would roll over and give up and not gather again. There's a lot of people in our world who that would give them a gleeful smile and a lot of joy. So I bring these news bites to you today because if they have you worried about the state of the church going forward, then I believe it's a perfect time for us as God's people to revisit Jesus' words about the church's origin and purpose and destiny here on the earth. We just read about it in Matthew 16. I want you to know, church, that I'm hopeful today because the church of Jesus Christ is not a man-made institution. It wasn't man's idea in the beginning. It was God's idea. The Father thought it. Uh, The Son bought it. The Holy Spirit wrought it. Uh, Satan has fought it. But praise God, the church is still moving forward today. Uh, Friend, this isn't the first storm that the church has had to weather. The church has weathered many storms down through the ages. Uh, She has stood the test of time. The church has survived princes and persecution, and poverty, and plagues, and yes, even popes down through the ages. And so, I'm not worried this morning about the state of the church. In fact, I saw a church sign the other day that I believe said it all. It said, still under the same management for 2,000 years. (laughs) And friend, you can't say that about any other institution on this planet, can you? Because a companies come and go. Princes and kings serve and then die. Uh, nations rise and fall. But praise God, the church still remains. Now here in Matthew 16, we have Jesus' first teaching about the church. And of course, we are all looking forward to that day when we can gather again and when we can raise holy hands and when we can hug necks, and when we can praise together as a body of God's people, I'm looking forward to it, and I know you are too. But until then, God has asked us to endure. God has asked us to take this trial in stride, learn from it, grow from it, and when we come out on the other side, be stronger as the church. And so today what I want to do is I want to encourage God's people by the help of the Holy Spirit and preach to you on this topic of the church triumphant. Now if you're taking notes today, I want you to see number one, the simple faith of the church. The simple faith of the church. We read about it there in verse 13. And when Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, He said, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Then they gave the fluctuating and changing reports of the crowds. Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah and Jeremiah and one of the prophets. But notice Simon Peter's simple faith. Verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that question that Jesus posed to Peter is probably... Uh, the most important question that anyone can answer. 
When you examine Jesus, the person of Christ, you really only have a few available options. He's either Lord or lunatic or liar. He's either a bad man or a madman or he's the God man. He's either deluded or he's a deceiver or I believe he's divine. There's only a few choices out there. I once heard about a doctor who was starting his new job at a psychiatric ward. The doctor thought it would be a good thing if he would make his rounds and meet some of the patients uh, that he was going to be caring for. And uh, so as he went from bed to bed, he introduced himself and he said, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and and tell me uh, who you are and tell me a little bit about yourself. And so he came to this one man and the doctor said, I'm Dr. So-and-so, what's your name? And the man replied, he said, I am Napoleon. And the doctor kind of furrowed his brow. He hadn't heard anything like that so far. And so he said, that's interesting. Uh, What makes you think that you're Napoleon? And the crazy man said, well, God told me that I am Napoleon. And about that time, uh, the man in the adjacent bed sat up and he said, no, I did not. Uh, You see, it's one thing to claim to be God. It's another thing entirely to prove you are divine. And Peter answered correctly, didn't he? This is one of those moments in the passage where we want to stop. And we want to applaud Peter because so many times he did put his foot in his mouth. But right here, his theology is correct and his faith is in the right place. Now how do you know, how do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, there's many lines of evidence that we could point to. Many things that we could show. How about His fulfillment of prophecy? Nobody ever come down from heaven and fulfilled so many hundreds of prophecies as Jesus did. Right down to the gnat's whisker. I'm talking about detail after detail. How about His virgin birth? the sinless Son of God coming down from heaven in that simple Bethlehem stable. His entrance into the world was unlike anything that had ever been seen. How about His many miracles uh, making the blind to see and healing the lepers, uh, casting out the demons and raising the dead. We might also talk about His sinless life. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in him, How about uh, his coup de grace, uh, his major trump card over any religious leader, and that was his resurrection from the dead. Praise God. You see, here's the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. The faith of the church is in a person. But the faith of Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism is in a program. You see, religions say... Follow our program. Whether that might be the five pillars of Islam or the eightfold path or a transcendental meditation or just do enough good works and you'll achieve heaven. But Jesus doesn't offer that. He is the way. He is the person. Jesus didn't come to offer a way or the best way. He said, I am the way. Religion says do, but Jesus says done. Religion says try, but Jesus says trust. Religion says behave, but Jesus says believe. I'm talking about the simple faith. So simple that a child can understand it. So deep that a scholar can't really ever plumb the depths of it. It's faith forsaking 
All I trust Him. It's as simple as Jesus loves me. This I know. It's for a whosoever will. Praise God. It's not about uh, what you know. It's about a who you know. Who have you put your faith and trust in? You see, friend, if they ask today, and they say, who do you say Jesus is? I just tell them, I believe what my Bible tells me. I can't improve upon that. You see, in Genesis, He's the Creator God that picked up a lump of clay and breathed the Spirit of life into man. In Exodus, uh, He's the Passover Lamb and those who are covered by the blood are going to be okay. In Leviticus, He's the one who fulfills the whole sacrificial system. In Numbers, uh, He's the brazen serpent on a pole. Uh, Look to Him and you will live. In Joshua, He's the captain of the Lord's army. In Judges, He's the mighty Deliverer in Ruth. He's the kinsman redeemer who buys the girl and buys the land and says, it's all mine in First and Second Samuel. He was David's salvation. In Psalms, He's the good shepherd. In Proverbs, you find out He's all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. In the prophets, uh, He's wonderful, a counselor, a mighty God, a prince of peace, everlasting Father. In Matthew, He's the King of the Jews. Uh, In Mark, He's a suffering servant. I'm talking about when you get to Luke, He's a son of man. And in John, He's a son of God. And if you keep reading and you go into the epistles, you find out uh, He's the bridegroom of the church. And then in Revelation, praise God, He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, and He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Ask me who He is. I'll tell you, it's just a simple man's faith. I take it as the Bible gives it out. You see, Peter shows us something here today. Peter shows us that Saving faith is a personal conversion that leads to a public confession. You see, Peter wasn't afraid to make it known who he thought Jesus was. There's a lot of people who think that salvation is about how much I give or what denomination I belong to or is my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. But friend, if you've never come to Jesus, if you've never said He's Lord and God, if you've never repented and trusted in Him as Savior, then you don't have saving faith. You don't have personal faith. You know, in this country, it may not cost very much to make such a profession, but there's places in our world where if you name the name of Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. A few years ago, in 2015, we started to read about ISIS. How ISIS was moving across the world and pillaging and killing and burning down churches and so on. There was one mother. Her name was Alice Asaf. She survived an ISIS attack in the city of Damascus. And I read a story about what they did in her life. 
uh, they started rounding up Christian families and they gave them an ultimatum. They said, you either deny Christ and ascribe to Islam or die. And so she said the ISIS fighters started knocking down her door. And she turned to her 10-year-old son, a little boy named George. And she said, George, when they opened the door, she said, tell those men that we're Muslims. And here's what the little boy said back to his mama. He said, Mama, he said, I will not hide myself. Mama, you're the one who taught me what it means to follow Jesus. If I deny Him before men, He'll deny me before the Father. I can't say that, Mama. And she said that they beat down the door and they came in and they ravaged Alice and then they laid their hands on that little boy, George. And they asked him that question. Hey, will you deny Christ and save your life? And here's what a little 10-year-old boy looked in the face of a hardened terrorist and he said, I will never deny my Jesus. And they took him out back and they made the mother watch as they executed that boy. And that mama gave her report. Here's what she said. She told reporters, she said, I console myself with the fact that my son died with a simple faith. Oh my goodness, child of God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Hey, is He worth dying for? If you're not ready to die, you're not really ready to live. And let me show you something about this simple faith. This is why you can't eradicate the church because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ endures for we have a faith that can't be denied. It can't be denied. And so we see number one, I want you to notice the simple faith of the church. And then I want you to notice with me number two, how about the stable foundation of the church? Verse 16 you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you're not as smart as you think you are, Peter. <laughs> but my Father who is in heaven. And in verse 18, notice this. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the stable foundation. You know, for centuries, the Catholics, I believe, have wrongly interpreted that passage right there to say that when Jesus was speaking, He was referring to Peter as the rock upon which He would build the church. And then they use that as a way to justify what they call Patrine succession or their Pope system. Well, my simple response to that is, hey, if Peter was the first Pope, uh, then he surely didn't know it. In fact, several passages in the New Testament refute that idea and clearly teach that Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the church is built. In fact, Peter said this. 1 Peter 2.7 In that verse, he quotes from Psalm 118. And he says there about Jesus in that verse, the stone which the builders rejected has become, watch this, the chief, <laughs> the chief cornerstone. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11 that same thing. He said, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the stable foundation. I was reading this week from Dr. Greg Elder. He's a church historian. 
Uh, you may not know his name, but he wrote a, a great book about church history. And in that book, he tells a story about when he was a little boy, how he liked to build sandcastles. And he said, but there were these bullies in his neighborhood who liked to pick on him, and they would come by after he'd finished his sandcastle, and they'd kick it over uh, just out of pure meanness. Well, one day Dr. Elder said that he was uh, going home, walking from school, and he walked by a construction site, and some men were building a house, and he noticed a pile of cinder blocks over there, and so he got a good idea. He went home, and he got his wagon. And then he hauled his wagon over to that work site, and he asked the foreman, he said, can I have one of these bricks? And he said, sure, son, take it with you. So he put that brick in his uh, wagon, and then he made his way home, and then he said that he started to build him another sandcastle. And he built that sandcastle on top of that cinder block, and covered it over. And he said the next time that the bully came down the street to kick his sandcastle over, why, he broke his big toe on the side of that block. And you can imagine some four-letter words that begin to come loose out of his mouth. But Dr. Elder went on to say, hey, that was the last time that the bullies picked on me. And what I want to say to you is this. Oh, I feel the Spirit of God today. Uh, many people today say, oh, the church is in trouble. Uh, the church won't make it through. Uh, they don't have enough money. Uh, they're going to fall apart. The pandemic's going to kill them. Uh, the church is being attacked by all kinds of bullies. Uh, there's the media and secular culture. Uh, there's the LBGTs. And all of this are fueled by none other than the church's enemy who is the devil of hell. But friend, uh, what we've got to remember today is that the church is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And those who would want to break her down will end up breaking themselves against the rock of ages. Uh, we sing the song from time to time out of our hymnal, don't we? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'm telling you about the church's stable foundation. Uh, the church was built uh, for just a time as this. Maybe one of the most infamous skeptics of all time was Voltaire. He was a French philosopher and author. And he used his pen like a sharp sword to cut down faith in Christ and the Bible. In 1778, Voltaire made a prediction before his death. Listen to what this secular man said. He said, due to the advancements of science and technology, a hundred years from now, Christianity will be swept from existence and pass into history. He said that the Bible would be relegated to the dustbins of history and that churches... 1778, he said, churches will forever close, <laughs> forever close their doors. Of course, we all know what happened. A Voltaire is very much dead, and Jesus Christ and His church is still alive 240 years later, going strong. And here's the icing on the cake. To make it so much more ironic, do you know what happened to Voltaire's property after he died? It was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society and they bought his printing press. And so they bought his house and his printing press and they used it for many years to print Bibles out of his own house and send it all across the world. I'm telling you, God has a sense of humor. I'm telling you that God is the one who gets the last laugh. 
Listen to me, church. Uh, This pandemic is not going to kill the bride of Jesus Christ. It's going to purify us. It's going to help us be stronger. It's going to help us grow in our faith. It's going to give us a testimony when we make it through to the other side. But listen to me. Jesus Christ is married to the bride that He purchased with His own blood. And didn't He say what God has joined together? Let no man put asunder. Uh, When God has ordained something, no government can overrule. No adversary can overwhelm. uh, No devil can overcome it. Uh, We're resting on the chief cornerstone. He's stable. He's the rock of ages. We're resting on a good foundation. We're held by the hand of a good shepherd. Uh, We're betrothed to the King of kings. And we're supplied by the One who walks among the lampstands. And He knows everything about His church. Friend, I'm talking to you about the stable foundation of the church. And the simple faith of the church. And then I want you to see number three. The spiritual formation of the church. Oh my, the spiritual formation. Look at what it says in verse 18. These words right here. You are Peter, and on this rock, here it is. I will build my church. Now sadly today, the church measures success in three ways. Buildings, and budgets, and big shot preachers. But Jesus said, hey... Uh, This is my endeavor. Uh, This is my invention. He said, I will build my church. I don't need buildings. I don't need budgets. And I don't need big name preachers. Didn't He say, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, if man tries to build the church in his own cleverness and in his own tactics, what we end up with is a religious country club. We're helpless, friends. We're depending upon the Son of God and the Spirit of God to do what only they can do. Hey, I can preach, but it's only the Holy Spirit that can convict the heart of a sinner. I can pray, but it's the Father who opens up the windows of heaven and sends His blessings. Uh, We may plant and we may water, but it is Christ and Christ alone who adds the increase to His labor. And what I'm telling you should be a comfort out there, preacher. What I'm telling you should be a comfort to you out there, deacon. Uh, You don't have to be super. You don't have to be great. Uh, You don't have to be a God's gift to the church because He's already great. He's already spectacular. He already said, I'll build it in spite of you. I'll build it without you. I'm going forward and you're going to see what I'm going to do. 1 Peter 2 There's another architectural analogy that he uses there about how Christ is building the church. Look what he says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 4. He says this, Coming to Him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Watch this. So you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the past 2,000 years, God has been building a grand spiritual cathedral. It's called the church. It's built from people of every nation, language, kingdom, tribe, 
and tongue. Uh, Jesus is the divine architect. Uh, you and I are the stones. Uh, the quarry is the world. Every time somebody trusts in Jesus as Savior, uh, He goes out into that old dark quarry of the world and He chisels them out uh, from where they are. Uh, he polishes them up and He fits them perfectly into that spiritual house that He's been building. Friend, notice this. The church of God is a trophy of grace forever built to bring glory and honor to a lost and dying world that, hey, my God can save anybody, anytime, any place, and from, the, from some of the most surprising backgrounds and ways. And then He'll put them in His house and He'll use them for His glory. Praise God. Hey, listen, last time I checked, the trumpet hadn't sounded yet. God's not done. He's still saving sinners. He's still calling people to His name. He's still working. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Yes, even during these troubling times, uh, yes, during times of panic and fear, He's still building His church. It's not over till God says it's over. Uh, there's still work to be done. And won't it be grand and glorious when we can gather again and we can meet again and see that God's work is still going on. Uh, there's still singing to be had. There's still shouting uh, to be had. There's still messages to be preached and souls to say and folk to be baptized because Jesus said, I'm going to build this church irrespective of man. Oh, friend. You come to my house right now, one thing you're going to see all over our house is little Lego creations. Daniel, my six-year-old boy, he's got a big old tub of Legos in his room. He likes to sit for hours and take those little blocks and put them together into all kinds of little creations that his mind can come up with. And by the way, uh, you just think you're saved and sanctified till you step on one of those Legos and uh, then you realize you're not as holy <laughs> as you thought you were. Somebody say amen. But listen, my son will sit there and he'll play with those blocks for hours. And then he'll bring them to me. He'll bring it over to me and he'll say, Daddy, look at this. He'll say, Daddy, this is a garbage truck. And Daddy, look what I made. Uh, this, this is a pizza store. Daddy, I want to show you. I made a lawnmower. Isn't it cool? And we'll get down in the floor and we'll play with those things. And sometimes I look at it and I'm amazed at what the little boy can do. He's got a mind that can put all the pieces together. And you know what? Value is a lot like beauty, isn't it? It's in the eye of the beholder. Or in this case, it's in the eye of the builder. Uh, sometimes the world looks at the church and says, uh, there's nothing special about that. Uh, I know who those people really are. Uh, look at how weak they are. Look at how weird they are. Uh, look at how foolish they are. But I'm telling you that God's Son has been building something uh, mysteriously, invisibly, providentially, and powerfully down through the ages. Oh, it doesn't look like much to the world, but He takes it to the Father 
that he says, look what I've been building for your glory and for the gospel. And it's precious to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Only he can take the small individual pieces of life and put them together. So you say, but I'm weak, but I'm an addict, but I'm broken and I'm depressed. I'm a nobody. I don't count for nothing. Listen to my past story. God doesn't care. He'll quarry you out of that mess and bring you in and polish you and shape you and put you in and say, now you're going to bring glory and honor to my name. You see, everyone in the church is loved and chosen and belongs right where God put them. From the little sound guy to the man who sweeps the floor to the usher to the singer, to the preacher. They're all cut out of the world and built into this cathedral that God's building. Praise His name. Number four, and I'm done. I want you to see this. The successful future of the church. The successful future of the church. Notice what he says here. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. Gates. What are gates for? You ever thought about that? As you read this passage. Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive structures. They are meant to keep people in and keep People out, right? The purpose of a gate is to hold back, to protect, to be a barrier. And so when Jesus spoke here of the gates of hell, what He's referring to, listen to me, is the domain of Satan. And what He's saying here is, our enemy is holding captive people in the chains of sin and addiction and death. But as the church moves out, as the church moves forward, we go into that enemy territory and the forces of hell can't stop it because it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's anointed and empowered by the Spirit of God. It's stable under the foundation of the Son of God. And we go in and we can't be stopped from carrying out the Great Commission. Marching for Christ into that enemy territory, helping to release the captives and bring them out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. I'm talking to you about the successful future of the church. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said, and I'm almost done. He said, quote, The structural position in the church which the humblest Christian occupies is eternal and even cosmic. The church, he says, will outlive the universe. In it, the individual person will outlive the stars. Everything that is joined to the immortal head of Christ will share in His immortality. As members in the body of Christ, as stones and pillars in the temple, we are assured eternity and shall live to remember the galaxies as an old tale. (laughs) Praise God, the successful future of the church there was an incredible story that I read earlier this week and I put it on my blog so many of you have already seen it but it reported 
an incident that reminds us, church, that we will endure. It happened in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the moment was caught by a local news broadcast. None of it was planned. It was just providential. So on top of all the COVID-19 shutdowns, the area in that country of Tennessee received a double whammy a few weeks ago when they had those devastating F3 tornadoes blow through. We watched that. We saw it on the news. So they had the virus going on and then they had that on top. There was one local reporter. They were standing in the rubble. Right where a church had been, the Faith Community Wesleyan Church. And he was doing his broadcast. Behind him was the ruins of a church that had been decimated by the storm. And then a lady drove up in her vehicle. Her name was Tracy Coates. According to the article that I read, she was driving by the church. And she saw in the rubble among the block and the timber and the dust and the mess, he, she saw an old piano sitting there just asking to be played. And the article said that she stopped, she got out of her vehicle, made her way through the ruins, sat down and just started playing to the glory of God. And the news camera stopped. And the newscaster said, Turn the camera over here. I want you to see something. And there they saw this believer, Tracy Coates, playing out that familiar tune, Because He Lives. (laughs) I can face tomorrow because He lives. (laughs) All fear is gone because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because He lives. You can destroy a building, but not the church. The church into the battle location or a piece of real estate. It's not about brick and mortar. Listen, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. But today, in this age of grace, God has a people for His temple. Uh, you, you can't destroy the church because it's not about a building. It's the people who have been scattered abroad. No, the church ain't shut down. Uh, We've just been deployed in an unusual way like never before to bring glory and honor and sing a song to His glory and praise. And so I want you to be encouraged today, church. Oh, we're going to get through it. And the church is going to be on the other side. And Jesus is going to get the glory as the world takes notice of people who've been redeemed, and people who don't panic, and people who've got peace, and people who know how to live in such a time as this. It makes the world stop and say, how come you're singing when your building has been destroyed? How come you're praising Him when you can't meet and listen and praise together? People notice. Maybe you've been noticing out there and you've been looking at your life these past few weeks through this pandemic and you notice that there's no peace in your heart. You're really not living for much of anything beside a paycheck and the next week and the next party and the next high. You look at your life and you say, I don't have a stable foundation. I don't have a church. I don't have a song I can sing. 
Well, I want you to know that God loves you. And Jesus died for you and He wants to save you today. And He wants to plug you in and bring you into His church. Make you a part of the fold. Get glory from your life. If you'd like to make that decision right now, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And so you can bow your head and you can pray with me. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, there's nothing good in me. I've wasted so many of my years. But God, I believe that You love me. I believe that You died in the person of Jesus Christ. You died in my place. You took my punishment. Lord, I want to be saved today. Cleanse me of all my sin. Wash me. Make me new. Lord, I want to live for You today. Help me, God. Save me today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we'd certainly like to encourage you from the church. My email is coming up on the screen. It's dm4truth at gmail.com. We'd love for you to leave a message there. If you made a decision today, if you trusted in Christ, we want to encourage you.